0: So when you start getting really good at feedback and open, honest, and frank conversations within the workplace, courageous conversations are going to you know plummet as in in terms of frequency and intensity because there's not going to be any of those surprise attacks that happen with courageous conversations, and everyone's on the same page. And a lot of that is just really being proactive with the conversation.
1: Each week, I interview successful entrepreneurs and deep dive to discover the exact strategies that they've used to build their business so that you can experiment and implement these strategies in your business too. Welcome to the Thought Leaders Business Lab. Welcome to the Thought Leaders Business Lab, Ali. It's great to have you here joining me today.
0: Thank you so much. I'm pretty excited to be here.
1: What's really cool about having you here is that I didn't realize that we knew each other from our childhood. And it was, I think you're awesome. You're the one that remembered and reached out and said, I think we used to dance together back in the day. So I think it's really cool that we're sitting here having these conversations now I'm not going to say how many years later, but quite a few years later, a
0: few, a different lifetime. That's for sure. It's um, it's interesting because, you know, we did meet through dance many, many years ago. And one of the things that they teach us when you're a ballet student is you learn fifth to forget it, which is, you know, a bit of a saying in a position that you stand in, in the ballet world. And what made me recognize that you were a a dancer or an ex-dancer, I saw a photo of you and I thought, oh my goodness, she's standing exactly like a ballet dancer. And then <laughs> within minutes, you said something about um, the type of a dance that we used to do and I was like oh the uh, the light bulb moment and I realized that of course we had met in a past life uh, when we lived in the same state
1: absolutely and it does feel like a past life it feels like a couple of lifetimes ago actually <laughs> so it's really cool to have you here why don't we you start off by sharing what it is that you are currently doing
0: Yeah, thank you. Uh, So I'm a leadership and performance coach. So I work a lot with leaders and partner with organizations around building leadership capability. But I guess the main difference is a lot of what I do is around teaching leaders or teaching uh, organizations how to have the courageous conversations. So we unpack the art of a courageous conversation, what it is, how you do it, and how they can roll that out within their teams around leadership. So I'm of the belief that there's no uh, problem that can't be fixed with a courageous conversation, and I think we need to get much better at having those conversations and much better at uh, being comfortable with having those courageous conversations.
1: So, how would you describe a courageous conversation? Like, what what is a courageous conversation?
0: Yeah, good question. So, a courageous conversation, and most people link this to specifically to performance management, although it can be other things as well. But it's that moment when you need to have a conversation, you feel that you know pit in in your stomach and you're thinking oh gosh I don't really want to be doing this someone's going to cry and we go to all lengths that we possibly can to avoid having the conversation we know we need to have it um, but we just you know we just don't because it makes us feel uncomfortable Um, it's going to be a little bit tough we're going to have to lean into that uncomfortableness to be able to have those courageous conversations and uh, I guess what what it actually is is being able to be comfortable with Um, having a tough conversation because you know that it's for the betterment of the relationship or whatever the resolution or solution is that you're going towards.
1: Yeah, beautiful. So I'd love you to share, how did you get here? Because I know that you've got um, quite a long experience in leadership, but what was it that actually brought you to this place where you realized that you needed to help people have these courageous conversations?
0: Yeah, you're right. It has been a while. So I've uh, worked as a leader and with leaders for over 15 years now. But where I guess courageous conversations really came from, uh, it was right back in my childhood, which is where all the good stuff normally happens. But I uh, I specifically remember being about eight years old. I was in Miss Max Goviak's class in primary school. And- <laughs> I love that you still remember her name. <laughs> It was Miss Max Kofiak, you know, <laughs> I don't know how to spell it, but uh, I can definitely remember it. Mm. And uh, I was lucky I grew up um, in the family home. You know, my parents were happily married. I've got two sisters and a brother, so a family of six. And every night without fail, we had dinner around the dinner table Um which was beautiful and it was a great tradition. And I try and do that with my family as well. But because we all sat there as a family, my uh, mum was a scientist in her field and quite high up, um, I guess, in the, the science, science world or mm-hmm. science industry. And she was is, was in the early 80s and, and 90s and she was in a sector where it was quite unusual for women to be scientists and certainly mm-hmm. to be good scientists and not you know a secretary or something like that um, but she came up across quite a bit of conflict during her working life you know she worked predominantly with men um, and a lot of them I guess there was uh, the academic competition between mm-hmm. them as well so most nights around the dinner table um, the conversation would be you know how's your day at school that's great I'm going to unload now and she'd talk to my dad about all of the problems that she'd had at work, uh, the conversations that she didn't have, you know, how everyone was really mean to her and no one listened. And it kind of went on and on like this, uh, most nights around how much she disliked her workplace but loved the work because she was a passionate scientist. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember Miss Max, Max Goviak's class, and I was the star of the day one day, which was, you know, this was in the, the early 90s. So this was the time when you actually had to earn a star of the day. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just handed out to you like it is these days. And I was so proud of my. Myself because I was notoriously not great at listening. As a child, I uh, was quite easily distracted and uh, I was super proud and I was so excited to have dinner time and be able to say, oh, I was the star of the day today. Um, and on that particular day, my mom had had a, a bad, bad day at work and she spent nearly an hour and a half. I mean, I don't know, I was eight, so maybe it was an hour and a half, could have been 20 minutes. I'm not sure. Um, unpacking about, you know, how terrible it was at work and how no one listened to her. And in my mind, I just kept thinking like, why doesn't she just say something? Like, why doesn't she just tell them that? they're being mean to her. Why doesn't she do this? And why doesn't she do that? And I guess in the 90s it was a different working environment. Of course, you know, that probably would have meant that she was fired. So of course she didn't say anything. But then when I started my own career after I hung up the ballet shoes, um, back in banking and finance, I made a promise to myself that I wasn't going to bring that work junk home to my home life because I think, you know, we do, we do need to have that balance. We do need to have that segregation, although it's different a little bit at the moment where we're half of us are working from home. Mm. But I made a promise that I was just always going to ask and always going to tell, uh, so much so that I got really comfortable with confrontation. I actually quite like it. My husband often jokes that I'm a walking confrontation because I don't seem to back away from it. So thank you, <laughs> darling husband.
1: Um,
0: but you know, and and because I was so comfortable with saying what was on my mind, I would far prefer to be uncomfortable for a short amount of time than walk on eggshells, uh, you know, for months, sometimes on end. And I became really good at having courageous conversations with my team, with the leaders around me to, um, I guess, improve the relationship, to get better traction, to work, you know, more efficiently, more effectively. And it was all around this, my ability to be able to have courageous conversations.
1: So when you were in the finance industry and you because you were quite young when you moved into that leadership or management role in there having these courageous conversations was it something that came naturally to you is it something that you started off knowing right from day one or is it something that you learned over time and kind of put that story together of you know your star of the day story when things weren't working and changed things up how did how did that transpire?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. So early on, you're right, I did, I was in my very early 20s when I started in banking and finance. And I think I was quite, I've was. i always been quite rebellious and I'm a bit of a disruptor. So I do like to challenge the status quo and really push, um, I guess, any norms, social norms, corporate norms, whatever it happens to be. Um, and I kind of went in there guns blazing. I was full of optimism, energy, and, uh, you know, I was ready to conquer the world. And so I found those courageous conversations that I was having were happening quite organically for me, mm-hmm. but I also started to notice on the receiving end, people were like, oh, that's a bit weird. Like, you know, she really just said what she meant. And I kind of ended up getting this reputation of, you know, someone that said what I meant and meant what I said. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't probably until about 10 years after that, that I was working more with, leaders as opposed to being a leader myself and every single question that we'd have when we were having a coaching call or you know when I was having a team meeting with them was like oh, I've got this performance management um, conversation I have to have but I don't really want to do it or how do I do it and I, and that's when I started to piece it together and realize that people didn't know how to have these conversations they weren't comfortable with being uncomfortable they didn't know how to navigate from point A to point B to point C, whatever that happened to be. Um, So I spent a lot of my time coaching other leaders on how to performance manage their staff.
1: Yeah. And I think that, you know, as I'm listening, it's it's really, it's not just conversations like this that we have in a workplace. It could be with team members. I know that a a lot of people will not give their team members feedback and then get Mm -hmm. frustrated that they're not getting the work that they want. And, you know, end up, letting that that team member go because they're not producing the work but they've never actually been told or given any expectation of what that could look like it could be for clients that are overstepping the boundary it could be even in home life with uh, within our home that then also as business owners bleeds into our business if we've got a relationship that's not working it can alter you know how we're conducting business on a day to day basis so how do we begin because I know you've got a five step process. How do we even begin to stop dancing around these conversations and I know what this is like because I've been that person where I don't want to have the conversation so I'll just dance around it um, so I think having a process would be super helpful.
0: yeah, so there is there's a five step process on how to actually have a courageous conversation. And it's really interesting because I started to unpack this as I was talking with people about what it was that was stopping them. And a lot of what we have to do uh, around courageous conversations is not what you think it is. So It's all around the stories that we tell ourselves, our internal monologue, or as I like to say, our itty bitty shitty committee. And what (laughs) happens is we know that it's going to be hard and all of a sudden our internal monologue starts, you know, uh, disasterizing all of the possible things that could happen. You know, they might cry, they might yell at me. I don't want to hurt their feelings. And we end up making an absolute mountain out of a molehill and it's all internally And that's where it sort of begins. It's the stories that we tell ourselves. Um, I can see you nodding there. So I know that you understand it's this internal monologue that just completely blows things out of control. And, uh, you know, if you've had an argument in home life, this is usually where people recognize it. You have an argument with your spouse or a discussion aggressive discussion around (laughs) uh you know something that might be happening and you walk away and you come up with you know 18 comebacks of all the things that you could have said and you had time to dwell on it and you're like oh well there was that time you know six months ago when they did this and because they did that they obviously weren't thinking of me perhaps I'm projecting now I'm not sure Uh, you know they weren't (laughs) thinking of me and, and because of that and this is what they meant and you know there's even that funny meme about um women do this more than men where a woman is you know oh what's wrong and they've in there it's like a little speech bubble and it shows all the things that they think could possibly be wrong when they're trying to talk to their partner and then Uh on the partner's side it's like that their footy team lost and that's why they're feeling a bit sad so it's definitely how we get um out of control so step one of uh five steps of creators conversation is actually mastering your stories you know once you start recognizing what it is that you're telling yourself uh, and then get a handle on that and be able to really check check it for yourself. Uh, step two is actually find your facts. So more often than not, when we're trying to have a courageous conversation in the workplace, we've either, see, either seen or heard something or we've been told it from another staff member about something that's happened. So actually go on a little fact-finding mission and find out what's true, what's not. And if it's something that you've been told by someone else is actually checking what their stories are that they're telling Mm. themselves. You know, what are their facts and what's the stories? Because, you know,
1: complicated uh,
0: relationships. Chinese whispers. Bit of Chinese whispers, a little bit of embellishment sometimes, exaggeration, or um, even just the perception. You might have caught the tail end of something and you've conjured up an entire story uh, all by yourself. So that's step two is uh, finding your facts. And step three is begin with the end in mind so what I mean by that is more often than not we're like oh we just need to tell somebody off and I don't really know where it's going to go and they're probably going to cry and I'm not sure what the next step is going to be but courageous conversations are all about resolution and solution focused so we want to actually repair the relationship yet to the end of the situation kind of come up with some kind of you know full stop the end here it is um We've, we're over that now so beginning with the end in mind know where you want to go um, and if you want to go that way and if you want to have that conversation with the person then how would you behave in that particular circumstance which then uh, naturally falls into step four which is actually plan it out so more often than not we get you know get so caught up in the conversation that we've got to have and we need to book it in and oh my goodness they're gonna cry and do I need to get HR involved and What's this going to mean, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, that we don't actually concentrate on what it is that we want to say. So that's getting really clear on the stories that we've told ourselves, getting clear on the facts, and being able to share that with the person that we need to speak to, and say, "Hey, here's what I know, happened, heard, saw, felt, whatever it was. Here's what I'm telling myself about it. What I'd really like um, for us to do is be able to repair the relationship, or I think we need to move in this direction, um, and actually plan that out before the meeting or before the conversation happens, and then by the time we done those four steps so the mastering your stories finding your facts beginning with the end in mind and planning it out having the conversation is of course the final piece but it's much easier because we've already got all of our head junk and the stories that we've told ourselves we know what the facts are we know what the fiction is we know where we're going and it's just a matter of actually having the conversation there as well
1: Mm, I love those. Let's go right back to that step number one. because You talk about mastering the stories and, you know, talking about that person might cry or they might get angry. Whilst you can master those stories, like there's this part of me that's still going, yeah, but what if they do cry or what if they get angry? So is it just a story? Like, I mean, at that point, it's a story, but what happens if that happens? Yeah, sure.
0: And it's not uncommon for people to um, cry or, I mean, it's less it's less common for people to yell in the workplace. I think that's part of our conditioning mm. and, um, you know, being workplace responsible. But yes, absolutely. People are going to cry. Uh, And that's their, you know, that's their release of their emotions. So more often than not, by the time you're having a performance conversation with someone, they know that they're not doing the right thing, but Mm. no one's called them up on it again. Mm. Uh, No one's called called them up on it before. So what would normally happen is they're like, oh, shivers, they go into their fight, flight or freeze um, mode, adrenaline goes through the roof, uh, and then their natural way to release that is by crying. So being prepared. And if you go in with the idea that they're going to cry, you're not going to be thrown off with the fact that they're crying. So, you know, making sure that you're finding a space where it's private, you wouldn't be having a courageous conversation on the floor where someone is definitely going to cry and disrupt business or customers or the rest of the team and being prepared that you've got, you know, you've got tissues, being able to show empathy, making sure that when someone is crying, they don't need to apologize for it. Of course, this -hmm. this is a release. It's very natural and often quite healing. Um, for people. And of course, if the courageous conversation that you need to have is going to set someone off and they're going to become quite upset, you can absolutely pause it and come back to it when they're in a better state of mind, when they've had a chance to get some fresh air, get a glass of water, whatever it happens to be. But if we prepare for the crying and for the tears and then it happens, then we know what we're going to do. Um, It's when we don't prepare for it.
1: Mm. Awesome. Now I'm thinking that there's a lot of people that they know they need to have these courageous conversations, but they're still afraid to have them in person. How -hmm. many, how much do you see people even finding these facts or having this conversation via email or social media?
0: Oh, that's a good question too. So my recommendation is that we don't do these types of things via email or socials. If you can jump on, you know, Zoom's prolific now. So if you can jump on a Zoom, go with Zoom. If you can do it face-to-face, that's really good. And the reason I say that is because email, there's the delay in response, Uh, Mm -hmm. there's the there's the chance that it's going to be mistrewed. You could put a typo, you do an exclamation mark instead of a question mark. And before you know it, you're going to have to have an entire another um, conversation about your misinterpreted email. So uh-huh. getting a handle on your stories, um, you know, that's a bit of your own work. Uh, the more that you write it down, it gets it out of our subconscious mind and into our conscious mind. And we can rationally start processing that around fact finding, pick up the phone. If you can't get on a Zoom call, um, actually talk to someone and then you can respond, you know, where human human nature, we're wired to actually pick up people's cues. So if someone's uh, not responding to you properly on the phone, you're able to actually dig a little bit deeper. Whereas on email, they could be at lunch, they could be getting a coffee or they could be crying mm. into their desk. You don't actually mm. know what the impact's going to be. Uh, so where you can do it face-to-face or on the phone and avoid email where possible.
1: Yeah, totally. I wanted to cover that off because I think that email is almost like a crutch for us or can be yeah. a crutch where people... Are afraid to have the conversation, but they think, "Oh well, I still have it, but Mm. I'll do it from behind my keyboard." Mm. And I think that, or my feeling would be behind that, that could almost create more damage than not having the conversation in the first place.
0: Yeah, a hundred percent. And you know, the the biggest problem with email is there's this blind BCC blind carbon copy, Mm -hmm. which causes more problems than it's worth. So I talk about this model called the incubator of resentment. So Courageous conversations are the antidote to uh, resentment and toxic uh, workplaces. Mm -hmm. So what normally would happen uh, if you're having conflict with someone is you'd go through all the processes and at some stage they're going to start telling their friends about it, their work buddies, their work besties, and then the work besties start looking out for it. If you send an email trying to have a courageous conversation, they can just forward that and before you know it, the entire Mm -hmm. organisation or your entire team is now privy to that and it kind of becomes a bit of a gang-up um, again yeah. up on the other person, so yeah avoid email at all costs, but you can.
1: Absolutely. Can you give us an example of a time that you really didn't want to have one of these conversations and you know just share a little bit of, around the situation and how it how it panned out, obviously keeping privacy, but just so that people can understand what this looks like in the context of the actual conversation and the situation?
0: Yeah, sure. So years ago, and this is probably when I became a little bit more familiar with my process, is I had a worker who uh, was amazing. So she was actually on my team, Um, you know, my right hand, right hand person. She was fabulous, great operator, but had quite a few health issues and had quite a bit of sick time. Totally legit. Um, You know, we became friends over time and, and it was definitely she was unwell and needed the time off. But at some stage, she ran out of sick leave. So I had to have a conversation with not only my like support person and my friend, but I also had to have the conversation and say, look, you know, we're going to have to start doing this as unpaid leave. And I know that that's going to have a financial impact wow. on you. And I know that it's probably also going to attribute to your health issues um, which is how the conversation went. And I'm always very open and honest and keep that feedback loop happening all the time. So this wasn't a surprise conversation. It was like, you know, you've got three days, you know, three three sick days earlier. You've got this sick leave, it's running out. You know, what are you thinking you want to do? How do you want to manage this? Can you have a think about it? Because we're going to have to have a conversation soon about it. So when it did happen, um, it was very much around like here it is, here are the facts. You know, you've got zero sick days left. You've still got some health issues that need to be sorted out how can I support you through this time? What are your ideas? What do you want to do? Here is what I think uh, needs to happen. And that's, you know, go on sick leave or can we, you know, put you on unpaid leave for three months and you can just deep dive into getting better. What What's going to work for you? And it had to be a conversation that worked for both of us mm. because, you know, I don't want to be responsible for someone. Um, I mean, I do want to be responsible for them, but I don't want to uh, make one of my, you know, one of my amazing staff members feel that they can't come to me when they're having problems because I, it's my job as a leader to make sure that I support them, but really being clear around what the parameters are for that as well.
1: Mm. So what I'm hearing from just you talking about that is, one, you've brought, you've brought the conversation up before the actual real conversation. So you've, yeah. got, you've got some sort of point that you can relate back to, someone can start to think about how this is going to uh, sound moving forward but also not going into the meeting with this is the this is the answer this very much needs to be a conversation rather than this is what I'm telling you to do or this is what's going to happen
0: yeah yeah absolutely and being able to have those so when you start uh, getting really good at feedback and open, honest, and frank conversations within the workplace. Courageous conversations are going to, you know, plummet as in in terms of frequency and intensity because there's not going to be any of those surprise attacks that happen with courageous conversations. And everyone's on the same page. We know what's coming up. We know where everyone's at. And a lot of that is just really being, uh, I guess, proactive with the conversations. You know, I could have easily not said anything and waited for the sick leave to run out and then just been like, oh, sorry, well, you didn't get paid. But mm. I don't want to do that. Because because I want to have a have and continue a working relationship with uh, my team members. And I want them to know that they have the support, as much support as I can offer. And I will give that to them.
1: Yeah, totally. What difference did it make to your team knowing that you were having these conversations? So they knew that they could rely on you to have these conversations, but did you see a difference within the team itself and the, and the team members having these conversations with each other? Tell us about how different that was.
0: Yeah, totally. So my probably baptism of fire um, into my early leadership role was when I was fronted into a new team with about 14 women, and they were all really unhappy with themselves, each other, their workplace, their own boss, and, you know, obviously really unhappy to see me with my optimism and ready to to sort out their issues. Yeah. <laughs> So I, I spent probably 12 to 18 months having courageous conversations with each of them and setting up what I wanted our team to look like and how I wanted the team to function. And then we worked collaboratively on how that was going to happen. And it was a lot around, you know, building trust with each other, building trust with me. Um, I ended up leaving that team for another job eventually. But they by the end of it, they knew where I, I stood. They knew where they stood. And because I picked up, um, you know, that old saying of the, the standard that you walk past is the standard that you accept. Mm-hmm. So I didn't walk past stuff that I didn't think was that I wanted to accept if I didn't want to accept it. So they were very, um, there was no reason for me to get into the performance management um, space with them because it didn't, I didn't let it escalate. Mm-hmm it stomped, stomped out the fires before they became a bushfire. And uh, yeah, it absolutely built so much trust with my team. Um, they were able to come to me when they had problems. So what normally happens if you're scared of your boss mm-hmm. or scared of your leader is you don't want to tell them when you stuffed up, which only makes things worse. But mm-hmm. because I'd be like, okay, well, let's solve this problem. You can always come to me. It meant that um, we were able to problem solve a lot easier. We we're able to increase our performance a lot more. And I guess In terms of the team morale, the team makeup, everyone got along a lot better because we all just called a spade a spade.
1: Mm. So, massive, massive, far reaching effects of being able to have that conversation, create the safety starts to, I was going to say bleed, but flow through the rest of the team so that then everyone has that safety. How many people, so for people that are listening thinking, yep, this sounds all great, how many of those people really did? you know, how long did it take them to start to have those conversations? Because when, you know, when you're afraid to have a conversation, it's like, yeah, Ali, I love your five-step process. Sounds really cool. But every time that this conversation is kind of coming your way, you're like, "Yeah, yeah, nah, now's not the right time. I still don't feel like I've got a handle on these five steps. So I'll leave this till next time. Yeah. You know, how can people move into it? or And and also, I guess a different question is, how long did it take your team to be able to do that as well?
0: Yeah. So in terms of uh, the five-step process that I teach, so I teach that as part of my Courageous Conversations workshop, which is a one-day workshop, and um, it has all different types of leaders in there. I've got brand newies um, to our senior managers and a real plethora of experience in terms of leadership and across industry. And it's interesting because it goes for a day. We unpack the the five steps. We unpack all sorts of uh, different ways that they can use the tools with their teams. More often than not, from every single participant, I'll get an email you know, a week later and say, I did that thing that you said and it worked. So a lot of the, um, I guess the pre-work that we do before the five steps is around getting a handle on our head junk because that's what stops people. It's mm. the The idea and the the make pretend and the stories that we've told ourselves, it's going to blow up into this thing and they'll think that about me. And when you start really recognizing that that's your biggest hurdle and that's your actual barrier into being able to have uh, cohesive conversations with your teams, then that's when you can start to get some real progress. In terms of the team that I had my baptism of fire with, it was quite a large team and they had, we had to do a lot of work, but we worked really hard, you know, getting the buy-in from them that they did actually want to have a better workplace. You know, my, I guess my overall mission is that we actually change the way that we talk at work so that people that I'm working with, their kids aren't sitting around the table waiting to tell them about, you know, being star of the day, but their parents are too busy talking about all of this stuff that could have been solved with a courageous conversation. So it did take a lot of effort with, um, those women, I've definitely refined my skills over, over the time, but I reckon it was probably 12 months of solid work with all of them. And there was a lot of toxicity there as well to begin with. And then of course, business as usual and a few mergers and things like that thrown in for good measure. So yeah, it's definitely work. Um, But I started to notice a real difference probably within the first, maybe four months, I think in terms of team morale and working together. So it happened relatively quickly for a team that size.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So for people that have listened to this episode and they're thinking, yeah, actually I do need to, to look into this. Um, I believe that you have a free resource for people.
0: I do. So if you want to find out a little bit more about how you can actually do the five-step process to a courageous conversation for yourself, you can head over to madeformore.com.au forward slash courage and I've got a uh, downloadable worksheet that you can work on for
1: yourself. Awesome. So definitely head over there, grab the five-step process, grab the free resource that Ali has offered. I know that since I've met or re-met Ali, and we've been having these conversations <laughs> that I've certainly noticed how many conversations I was dancing around that I didn't realize that were, I was even dancing around. So I thoroughly recommend that you head over and grab that free resource. It will be on the show notes page as will all of the links to be able to connect with Ali further on social media. Ali, what is one thing that you really want to leave our listeners with today that would wrap this episode up in a box with a beautiful bow?
0: Oh, Uh, I think two things actually, and they're both Brene Brown quotes because she's amazing, Mm. but discomfort over resentment, you know, get in, feel that discomfort of having to have a courageous conversation and do it anyway because resentment is a really tough place to recover from. So discomfort over resentment every day of the week. And uh, clear is kind. You know, the more that we want to build relationships with our teams, we need to actually articulate what it is uh, that we want because we're not mind readers. They're not mind readers and being able to be really clear and specific with expectations is super important.
1: Love it. Ali, thank you so much for coming and sharing your knowledge and expertise with us today. It's been a great conversation. Hasn't been so courageous, but it's been a lot of fun. (laughs)
0: Thanks, Ali. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me.